at 89.3 FM. This is member supported. WPFW, Washington. Congratulations to all those across the nation who fought for the rejection of the Keystone XL pipeline. There's no place I'd rather be this morning, April 15, 2015, and standing in solidarity with you, fighting for $15 for everyone in a union. We are here today because workers in D.C. and across the country are being vastly underpaid for their work and hurting their families and our entire community. Fast food workers, restaurant workers, child care workers, home care givers, airport workers, adjunct professors, Walmart workers from every corner of this country are here to fight for $15 an hour. In D.C. alone, housing is getting more expensive. Jobs are paying less than families are struggling to get by. More than 25% of our children in D.C. live below the poverty line, and that's not right. We can do better than that. The average income of the bottom fifth of D.C. households is just $9,900. Can we do better than that, people? We have come to assemble in front of the White House and to make this point very, very clear. We can't breathe. We can't breathe simply because we are denied our human rights. So in 2015, when we can claim that people have conquered space, we, the Dalits, are in a moment to say, please realize, recognize that we are human beings. We need the support of sisters and brothers from across the world. With soul of power, I'm marching in. that we are living in a time that requires a black freedom movement for all black people. When I say all black people, I mean black women and men, our children, queer black people, gender non-conforming black people, trans folks, the incarcerated and the underemployed, migrants and students. All black lives are at stake in this.
Welcome to Can't Stop, Won't Stop, WPFW's year-end special on social justice activism here in the nation's capital. I'm Esther Rivera, producer and host of Thursday's 11 a.m. Community Watch and Comment, the On the Ground edition, which covers social justice on the streets and in the suites of power. On this show, we'll be reviewing 2015 in the world of activism and looking forward to 2016 for such urgent issues and movements, including Black Lives Matter, climate justice, and economic justice. Well, riding the wave of the burgeoning Black Lives Matter movement, 2015 was declared by many on the ground to be the year of activism. Well, what was learned during this year? What are the major developments and victories in these fights? And what are some ways activists can continue to demand and attain justice in the 1-6? As always, we have a lot packed into the next three hours. Discussion with Gerald Horn, Barbara Arnwine, Margaret Flowers, Kevin Zeese, and Tawanda Jones who has been fighting for justice for her brother Tyrone West, who died after being beaten by Baltimore police in 2013. We have much, much more music, poetry, voices of protest from 2015, like you just heard from right here in the belly of the beast of corporate, military, and imperialist power. So stay locked here at 89.3 at the office, in the car, at home, as we offer a different year-end perspective and special from those determined to keep fighting the power in the 1-6. We'll be right back. And the dance all we stop Police Who now have to see herbs a shop Police Who kill the youth from the block Police Them now have to hear truth Muslims facts Who have to see herbs a drive Police Are the easiest man to drive Police so in 2015, Black Lives Matter protesters continued to stay in the streets, including on 250 miles of streets and roads between New York City and D.C. for the March to Justice in April. And even though the streets of Ferguson, Missouri were calmer or did not get the coverage they did in 2014, there were movements all over the country and here in the nation's capital, beginning in a big way on MLK weekend with a vow to reclaim that holiday as a day of activism for justice, not for skiing or shopping. And tomorrow, on the last day of the year, activists will be once again shutting down Chinatown, demanding justice, and to protest the lack of indictments in the deaths of Tamir Rice and Sandra Bland. And But Ferguson still remained as an important touchstone, as on August 9th of this year marked the first anniversary of Michael Brown being shot down in the street and his body left lying in the street for four hours. For many activists, the anniversary brought into sharp relief the injustice, the seemingly impunity of police, misconduct by local prosecutors, and the ineffectiveness of the Department of Justice in achieving justice, the links between physical violence and economic violence, and the need to link our struggle to international struggles and remedies. Well, with me to start to unpack these issues for this segment are two people who are not strangers to the WPFW audience, Jennifer Bryant. Jennifer is co-host of Voices with Vision, which airs every Tuesday at 9 a.m. on WPFW. She is also a right-to-income organizer with 1DC. This primarily involves organizing black workers to create the D.C. Black Worker Center and incubating worker-owned cooperative businesses through Cooperation D.C. Welcome to the special, Jennifer. Thank you, Esther, for having me. And Netfa Freeman. Netfa is also co-host and producer of Voices with Vision every Tuesday at 9 a.m. on WPFW. He is also a longtime Pan-Africanist and international human rights organizer, an analyst, and a social justice workshop facilitator. 
and events coordinator at the Institute for Policy Studies. Welcome, Netfa. <laughs> thank you. Welcome. I mean, thank you for having me. <laughs> You're used to welcoming. My, uh, no, right? I know. <laughs> so, Neva, let's start with you. Starting with the earliest days of what was then D.C. Ferguson and now with the uh, October death of Alonzo Smith here in D.C., you've been both an observer and a participant in the Black Lives Matter movement and, in a sense, nationally. The Guardians Project, The Counted, and I checked it early this morning, says that 1,126 people have been killed by the police this year. Mm -hmm. And African Americans are twice as likely to be unarmed when killed by police. And there are, we are a disproportionate number of the victims. So I'm just wondering, you know, just looking at this past year, what are the most important facts and issues that you take away as we continue to experience the seemingly increased rate of people being killed mm -hmm. I think at, um, by police? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think what's happening with police, and, with, and it does seem like there is almost an increase, but we have to remember um, the role that the police play in the society and the infrastructure of society and our role as uh, in this, which is a, what is a settler colony. And so we are experienced being a, you know, a settler co a colony within a colony, being colonized here in the United States um, as a settler colony, and also um, some transformations when it comes to the economic development of the world, the global economic order, where we're a surplus population now, whereas at some point we were, we were able to be um, free labor for, you know, under slavery and things like that, and cheap labor under, you know, other instances uh, during the, you know, during times of, uh, of being you know, workers here. Um, and now, while now we're seeing a time where with the globalization and things being outsourced and the economic uh, problems that are coming in terms of the economy, we've become more now a surplus population where there's no use for uh, African people in this country now. And so you see the, the situations, um, the economy and these types of situations playing themselves out and how people, uh, when it comes to white people and the role of police and how they, how they do and all kind of manifestos and analyses and everything like that, that they're acting out their role much more in a more intense and serious way in which they are killing us. So in other words, it's almost like an unspoken means, an undoctrinated means of killing us, getting, getting rid of us. Mass incarceration, all these things are a result of uh, material conditions that have, have, have come, to, come to play here. And as we as a movement respond and we resist and the Black Lives Matter movement has come to you know, take a stand against these things, it puts people in a situation, puts the, our adversaries, so to speak, in a situation where they, they can't respond to our, our grievances. They can't give us redress because it would be counter uh, them having a, a, their interests served by the economy and counter the fact that we're a, a surplus population. So, in, in fact, they increase, intensify. They don't know what to do in the face of this movement. And so all kinds of things are intensifying, not just the fact that uh, the police are killing us more and that we're being incarcerated in higher rates, but also how we're being bought off, so to speak, with um, all kinds of you know, certain classes and people, uh, you know, promoted to certain classes by giving positions, by being a politist for the system, uh, all kind of nonprofit funds are being uh, uh, funneled into the, into the movement. So it's to get people not to realize our relationship to this system. And so that's why I think, uh, to me, is that I'm seeing 
more that we have uh, we have to look at the um, the the same reasons why certain things are happening in Africa, Africom, and the militarization in Africa is is the counterpart to what's happening to us in the communities right here. So I know that as part of your uh, work with. For example, Beverly Smith, the mother of Alonzo Smith, that uh, she is one of the family members, actually, who are calling for intervention or the, the, for the United Nations to take a look at what's happening in terms of these killings by police. And she recently announced at a press conference that she was calling on the United Nations to look at her son's, the case of her son's death. So we want to hear a little bit of... Uh, from, from that press conference now. Good afternoon. My name is Beverly Smith, and I am the mother of Alonzo Smith. After much discussion and thought, I am calling on the United Nations to conduct an independent investigation into the killing of my son, Alonzo Sierra Smith, by special police officers employed by Blackout Investigations and Security, hired by Marbury Plaza Apartments Complex, and authorized by the District of Columbia MPD. We are asking the United Nations to step in because we have lost faith in the ability of either the DC police or the federal government to deliver justice when it comes to the lives of black people in this country. My recent personal experience with Internal Affairs Agent Sergeant Richard Ehrlich, who's assigned to my son's case, further validates my claim. A couple weeks ago, I asked Agent Ehrlich about the whereabouts of my son's properties, such as debit card, keys, and $80 cash. Agent Ehrlich told me that the hospital in which my son was pronounced dead is holding his property. After my careful review of the hospital report, it clearly states that my son's property was released to Officer Murphy. When I brought this to Agent Ehrlich's attention for the second time, he only offered his apologies. His apology is not accepted. I expressed to Agent Ehrlich that he is the lead investigator on my son's case. The prosecutor and the grand jury are going to review the evidence that he submits to them that will determine to indict the special police officer involved in my son's killing or not. Therefore, how am I supposed to trust that you would do a thorough and effective investigation if you could not accurately tell me the whereabouts of my son's property, which is such a small task. I don't know if the problems with the investigation is the result of incompetence or a cover-up. Either way, I have lost faith in the ability or willingness of Metropolitan Police Department to conduct this investigation fairly. Okay, that was Beverly Smith, mother of Alonzo Smith. And I know that we both have been involved in trying to organize around the uh, UN uh, working group on people of African descent coming to the district next month and having people like Beverly Smith be able to tell her story and for people to be able to offer their testimony to that working group. Do you think that uh, some some people looking at the possibility of the UN like hearing these stories they'll think that we're we've totally uh given up on 
the fact that anything can be done here locally on the state level or nationally? Mm-hmm. Well, no. Um, I think we have such a complicated struggle, we have to look at it multifaceted. We're actually picking up, whereas people struggling, and it's not just the UN investigation, it's also organizing for community control of police. These are things that should be the natural democratic right of people who are, you know, the, 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 the governed gives us, we give them the consent to have this governed, so we should be able to, to govern us and have, um, give sanction police and whatnot. Um, so we should have the ability to understand what's going on. Malcolm X, um, toward the end of his life in the struggle with the organization of Afri- American unity, called for the recharge genocide call at the United Nations. And so we're just re, uh, you know, bringing that back up. If we don't, if we go, and it doesn't preclude, us organizing on the local level. It doesn't preclude, and I think what we have to realize when it comes to electoral politics in this country, it's designed um, to sustain the system. And so so it, we have to approach it that way. Without us having a much more um, organized and proactive means of working the system in our favor, in other words, we don't, when it comes to particularly the higher up you get uh, from the local to the, to the state to the federal level, we have less control the higher up we get. On the local level, we have more control about who the nominating, who the nominees for for elected office, whether there's a referendum, those kind of things. On the, sta- on the federal level, we don't even have the, there's no such thing as a referendum for people in the United States. Um, but on the local level, we have those. We can only exercise those um, if we're organized. So the first task for us is to organize our communities in mass and then in, um, and deploy these machinations, these strategies as an organized community. So often we just, people are, they don't want to deal with the necessary uh, task of organizing the community, especially those who would want to take advantage of being the elected official or whatnot. So they say, well, vote. They have us on voting campaigns. Just vote. And too many of us don't vote. And we're, you know, we're telling people that uh, our problem is that we don't vote. Well, that's not our problem, actually. Um, in fact, if we all did vote, it wouldn't solve the question if, in fact, we aren't all um, coming together with the same kind of a, 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 a collective idea and uh, action based on organized force to, of who we're going to vote for. In other words, instead of these, oppor- you know, every, and I'm not accusing anyone in particular, but being these opportunists that are we're selecting, that they're nominated by someone else and we're told to choose from, we would actually be agents in who are, who's being nominated. And they would arise uh, from being fortified out of our movements in the community on the grassroots, mm-hmm. and we select them that way. And yeah. so this is one part. Then we also have to look at the international part. So there's no one thing. Right, um, we right. just have to approach it from... So, Jennifer, I wanted to ask you, I had a couple of things to ask you, but I wanted to give you a chance to just kind of offer any kind of overview that you might have just looking at the past year in terms of Black Lives Matter movement. I know I connect your work to more the the economic side and, and linking kind of economic violence to physical violence. But before we get into that, do you have any just kind of overview thoughts? Well, you know, 2015, um, uh, activists called at the beginning of the year for 2015 to be uh, the year of resistance. Mm -hmm. And I think that that did continue into this year. I also think it's a year when we saw um, different um, ideological lines developing in the Black Lives Matter movement, which is very interesting. I mean, that's a more in-depth conversation to have, but that's been an interesting development. I also think that, like Miss Beverly Smith, we see people beginning to see that this is not an issue 
well, not beginning to see, but just beginning to accept, I think, in many ways, that this is not an issue of individual officers or individual police departments, that this is a systematic issue. We see earlier this week Tamir Rice's family also saying um, that they they have no faith in the local police department to affect justice. Oh, the the prosecutor. Yeah. It in the murder of their son. And I think that's something that we're seeing across the board. People see that the, that it's not just police officers murdering people, but that this justice or injustice system is completely um, broken. So the greater movement for black lives has linked this physical violence and a killing to the economic violence that we, we, we just mentioned. And it's developed an analysis demanding jobs that pay a living wage, an education system that doesn't leave us in like in massive debt before we can like even le- legally take a drink, you know, and that our public dollars are used for human needs and not for war abroad or this war against us at home. So um, tell us uh, a little bit about I mean, I know it's a long discussion, but kind of summarize for us some of the things that have happened locally around linking Black Lives Matter to economics. Well, I think in D.C., um, from the beginning, we've been very intentional about having an expansive definition of state violence. So when we say state violence, we're talking about jump outs on the local level. We're talking about the police killings that have happened in D.C. because there have been some here. But we're also talking about mass displacement, the the city trying to eradicate public housing in in favor of so-called mixed-use housing or mixed income, um, which is pricing people out of the city. I think the last number I saw was that over 40,000 black people have been displaced over the last decade. Mm. Um, And I don't know if that number is still um, current. But so we're connecting state violence um, to housing issues to issues of work. D.C. has one of the highest black unemployment rates in the country. And so all of these things we see, I mean, Netfa talks earlier about the fact that there are surplus, people are now seen as being surplus people mm-hmm. and that there's not enough work for everybody. And that might not be something that might actually get worse as the nature of work changes. And so what does that mean for folks who are in our community? We see as we see a growth in unemployment, we also see a growth in the prison industrial complex, which is is an employer. I mean, that people are in there working for barely nothing. And so we're just looking at the connection between all of these things and figuring out ways. I mean, that all of that sounds very hopeless, but there is actually a, a lot of really really exciting alternatives that are reemerging in this time of economic crisis and state violence. You know, one of, one of the things, one of those options, I, I, I had a discussion with Ruth Kaplan and Kimone Freeman, I guess a couple of months ago, about the idea of a public bank mm-hmm. and how right now our public dollars, our tax dollars, when you pay your I guess sales tax and your real estate tax, whatever you're paying, goes to Wells Fargo Mm -hmm. in their bank. And Wells Fargo is this big financier of the prison industrial complex. Mm -hmm. So we don't want that. Mm -hmm. And so it may be a road to go before that can actually be a reality. But to me, that's like an important um, effort, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of what you're talking about. Do you want to say something? 
Yeah, well, it was just to concur. I mean, I think what we're what we're witnessing or experiencing is capitalism in crisis, and while we must find something that replace and deal with this crisis, what what I like, what I think Jennifer and the work that those people are doing is, what do we do in the meantime? What alternatives can we have that are actually the embryos of the world that we want to see while while we're dealing with this crisis? I, and, okay. Just one one thing. Um, you know, I view myself as a Pan-Africanist and someone who's involved in the black liberation struggle as it manifests itself today. But I think it's also important to note that the larger economic crisis that Netflix is talking about is something that is negatively affecting everyone. Right. And you'll even see when we have meetings about um, gentrification and housing issues, now you see a lot of the first wave of people who moved here um, being priced out. And they're coming to the meetings. So it's a lot of younger millennials who the city says that they want to attract who also can't afford to live here. And they're living in group homes, eight and ten people in mm, one house. Yeah. And so this economic crisis um, definitely, I mean, people say that the black community is the miners' canary um, for the rest of the nation, but this is really something that's untenable for everyone. Right. So, you know, this whole issue of economic justice and li linking it to the physical violence is happening nationally, and it was highlighted in the Justice or Else March, and uh, that day I actually had a chance to talk to a young woman attending the march from Detroit who spoke about conditions there. My name is Tangela. Right now in Detroit, our educational system has been destroyed. Our people, water is being shut off by the thousands every day. 30,000 people are about to go into foreclosure, 30,000 homes rather, which means there may be three or five people in that home. So if you got 30,000 homes in foreclosure and there's five people in there, that's 150,000 people that's out on the street. And we barely have enough shelter for 400 people in the city of Detroit. So it's just about us fighting the oppression that's going on, it's pushing down on us. We want to push back. So we got to educate our people, motivate them, energize them so that we can have a positive impact on our lives. You know, and when I spoke to her, I, I, I also was thinking about the Ferguson report that Eric Holder released in May. We really just talked about the totalitarian conditions that people are living in in Ferguson in terms of being I don't even want to use the word pimped you know but just really you know ticketed arrested fined uh, basically used as this uh, cash cow to raise money for the city so that they could pay their salaries and also pay the salaries of these police who were doing the ticketing and Nothing, and, and I think just recently they, Ferguson has reached some type of settlement with the J Department of Justice. And even with all of these horrific things being talked about, there isn't a sense that things have really changed for the people of Ferguson, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's one of the reasons why people have not necessarily given up hope, but they're, they're realizing that their s solutions aren't necessarily on the local, state, or federal level. So, you know, I uh, I was going to play a little of that report, but uh, we we actually have so much to to go through. We we don't need to hear Eric Holder again th today. But I wanted to ask you about victories for the year. You know, because we it's easy. I mean, it's not easy, but we often talk about the the oppression, and it's it's all you know, it's 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 a crisis, and it's seemingly all encompassing but I when I look at 
even something like the Ferguson report come out that I have to think of it as a victory. You know, I have to think of it as some truth being spoken about and the light being shown on what's happening to people in Ferguson. And even when uh, we had some police officers are actually arrested and charged. And, you know, I think about it. Well, it actually took a video showing a police officer shooting a man in the back, you know, or shooting a teenager 16 times to get some to be on the road to justice. But I want to ask you, you know, if you had, you know, just some some sense of some mm. victories you thought that the movement achieved this year. Mm. Well, the first thing to me that comes to mind is the incredible uh, realization of the agency of young black people and young people of color and realizing their historic mission so to speak and so while we might you know see you know which is which are actually natural phenomenon and movements the the differences and cleavages coming about but those are actually a, a victory in a sense that they that means something is happening right and so while the you know and it heightens the contradictions and people are coming together they're you know, debating the 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 questions and the issues of the day and we're seeing our youth really uh, a new generation and, and uh, something stepping into it. People used to talk about, oh, you know, we want to, we need something, a movement like the civil rights movement and all that kind of stuff, re resurrecting. Well, this is to me the equivalent of that moment um, and people are going to take it to the next level. I have faith in that. How about you, Jennifer? You know, when I think about victories, I'm not necessarily thinking about any sort of court cases or indictments or rallies, but the biggest victory for me has just been being out in the street, being at organizing meetings, being at freedom schools and political education classes and beginning to see new faces consistently um, and seeing people who just weren't involved in anything actually coming out and saying, I'm fed up and what can I do and, you know, what can I learn and how can I get involved in this? And I think that's the, the biggest victory. Okay. So I've been speaking with Netfa Freeman, a longtime social justice act activist who works at the Institute for Policy Studies and is a member of Pan-African Community Action. Right. And also Jennifer Bryan, who is an organizer for One DC, where she's working to build a workers cooperative movement. They're going to stay with me for the next segment as we talk more about the links to economic justice, uh, more about local efforts to for local economic empowerment and what dangers and challenges that lay ahead as corporations try to grab even more of the globe. Stay with us. Yeah. 
When extremist politicians underfund public education and create anorexic, high poverty, resegregated schools, and then create anorexic teacher salaries, and then produce anorexic student performance and educational development, we have a heart problem. Hey, everybody. I got something to say, but actually I would like to give my time to the families that want to talk. However, I just do also want to say, what am I doing here? I'm doing here because I am a human being with a conscience. And when I see murder, I cannot stand by. And I have to call the murdered the murdered, and I have to call the murderers the murderers. Well, the biggest news among activists here in the DMV is the fact that the D.C. Public Service Commission just denied that proposal by Exelon for a $6.4 billion takeover of PEPCO. The commission unanimously rejected Exelon's proposal on Tuesday, saying that it was not in the best interest of the ratepayers. This rejection is a huge win for a broad coalition of activists who have demonstrated that if this merger does go through, D.C.'s electric bills will be higher and service will be even less reliable than under PEPCO. Buenos dias, mi gente. I bring you warm greetings from the Republic of Brooklyn. Less than a year ago this week, uh, the climate justice movement and the environmental justice movement was responsible for helping organize the largest climate march in history, the People's Climate March. How many of you were there? That's what's up. This is a movement moment. It's a climate justice movement moment. Pope Francis has given us back Jesus, the one, the, the one we, we know cared about the most vulnerable, the one who cared about the poor, the one who turned tables in the name of social justice. This is a movement when the eyes of the world are looking at the historical legacy of the extraction of the labor of people of color and the extraction of our land. Climate change is a consequence of all of that. Climate change is the consequences is the vulnerability of those of us from the front lines, historically living at the intersection of injustice. Friends, colleagues, dear brothers and sisters, we gather here this morning with the spirit of hope to stand together with His Holiness the Pope in saying that now is the time for us to change. We cannot delay any longer and that we look back on history and remember today the words of Nelson Mandela when he said, big change always seems impossible when you start but seems inevitable when you finish. And we are here today to say that it's within our capacity to make a transition from dirty energy to clean energy, that we can achieve 100% renewable energy access for all by 2050 if our political leaders act with courage, act with decency, and act with morality. We also want to say that to, as we gather on one of the greatest halls of democracy, we want to remind the people meeting there that in fact democracy was supposed to balance the wallet, rich people's power, with the ballot, ordinary people's power. And that in fact, and that in fact today as, a South, as an African when, and as people around the world look at the United States, we describe the United States as the best democracy money can buy. And that's not good enough.
If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Can't Stop, Won't Stop, WPFW's live year-end special on social justice activism here in the nation's capital. I'm Esther Rivera. My colleagues Jennifer Bryan and Netfer Freeman are staying with me to continue the discussion of economic violence. So in addition to considering economics as an integral part of the movement for black lives, it was also a major concern for those concerned about a myriad of issues, including the prison industrial complex, mass incarceration, the military industrial complex, and endless war. And even the attempted takeover of our local electric utility, PEPCO, by the Chicago nuclear giant Exelon. But on a national and international scale, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Treaty, or TPP, which a broad range of critics from economists to labor leaders to environmentalists, Internet activists, farmers, describe as a global corporate takeover. So joining us to discuss these issues is Margaret Flowers, and I was just joking with Margaret about whether she had been arrested more or Medea Benjamin, I don't know. (laughs) Neck and neck race. Thank you for having um, me. She's a pediatrician who has been on the front lines of many actions this year as an activist with popular resistance. Um, I last spoke to her uh, last month after she was arrested in Congress after protesting the U.S. bombing of a Doctors Without Borders hospital in Afghanistan. And shortly after, she led the Fall Rising demonstration right here in the district against the Trans-Pacific Partnership Treaty. Welcome, Margaret. Thank you for having me. And also, Kevin Z is joining us. He's also an activist with Popular Resistance who has been a, a leader in many issues around drug policy reform, Internet access, peace, and, and also the Occupy movement. He's also currently working with Flush the TPP uh, movement to oppose the controversial TPP. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks for having us on. So... It's been really obvious to me, and especially in recent weeks, that Americans are being steered into this kind of new phase of fear about terrorism. Mm-hmm. And every, I keep hearing reporters on TV say all the time, I shouldn't call them reporters, that's besperching the name of reporters, but <laughs> I should say just people on TV saying, just making the bold statement that, well, all Americans care about right now is ISIS. They, that's what they say, and they'll they'll make it as a statement, and they'll say, "Well, well, how can Bernie Sanders, for example, keep talking about this wealth inequality when people are just scared to death? Like, what does that have to do with what's what really important?" And so I'm I'm just seeing that issues like the TPP are kind of flying under the radar right now, and you know, critics uh, say that the TPP would allow corporations not our democratically elected officials or a nation's laws to dictate how societies function and how societies are controlled. So why don't, why don't we talk about that? Just, you know, what the TPP is and, you know, where it stands right now in terms of consideration. I know Congress has to look at it in the coming weeks and, and how it's just kind of, uh, flying under the radar. Right. Well, that's actually intentional. It's been that way, you know, for the many years that we've been working on this issue. We've tried very hard to get the commercial media to cover this, and they rarely ever do. And when they do, there's, you know, they certainly cover the lies that are coming out from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the Obama administration about it. Um, so, and I guess the one good piece of news is that fewer people are actually watching 
these um, these you know commercial TV outlets. So we've been able to reach you know working in a broad coalition of organizations representing all of those various groups that you mentioned, you know labor, environment, healthcare, the internet farmers, other food groups, um, we've been able to working together and using social media and independent media like this station and other outlets have been able to get the word out. And so there are, is a very activated group of people across the United States that are working to oppose this. We need to be bigger and we need to be bolder if we're going to defeat this. But really what the Trans-Pacific Partnership represents to me is this fundamental struggle that we're in of corporate power versus people power. It's pursuing the neoliberal economic agenda of privatizing everything that we care about to controlling it and restricting our access to it. So this is really a fundamental battle. Right now we're in a period where um, the text of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was negotiated in secret for more than five years, only uh, corporate lobbyists and lawyers had access to help write the text, but our own members of Congress had very limited access. We've been given a 90-day period to review about 6,000 pages of very technical legal language, and the President will be able to then legally sign that on February 4th. We're having mm -hmm. a nationwide day of protest that day. We encourage people to join that. And then um, he can send it to Congress at any point after that. And basically what Congress will be doing is putting in place what's called implementing legislation. It's the laws that need to be changed so that we can put into effect the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is a big point because they're actually rewriting our laws through this agreement. And then we right. have to change them to harmonize them with that. Um, and so the Obama administration will send it to Congress when they think they have the votes. Our job is to make sure that that never happens. Do it. Well, okay. the next big step actually is the State of the Union, which is oh, Jan true. January 12th. Yeah. Uh, and President Obama has said that he's going to make the TPP one of the centerpiece issues of that. He's going to really be pushing it hard. And uh, we have our media mobilizers as part of the FlushTheTPP.org campaign uh, ready to start to put out to the media the truth about the TPP and the other trade agreements that Obama's negotiating and also on the, during the State of the Union and after it to be you know, get through social media making sure our message gets out. Obama has a very big podium when he does the State of the Union so it's very hard to challenge it but I think we are as a grassroots movement we are this is the largest movement of movements against the T, against the trade agreement. It's a really what I, I just want to put one little frame on that that, that doesn't get talked about often. We live in an empire economy. We serve the largest empire in world history. The TPP is part of neo-colonialism. It fits, uh, there was a great article by a Black Lives Matter activist about how the TPP fits into the framework of the, the racist realities we face in the United States and around the world. We, the largest empire in world history works to please the, the, the states that serve us and the oligarchs in those states. The workers in those states, uh, the environment in those states are going to be weakened. And Western right. corporations are going to be po more powerful than those countries around the world. They'll be more powerful than our country. We already had to change a couple of, couple of laws. The, the label, meat, meat labeling law that we told where meat came from had to be changed because of a WTO decision. We have right. to change the dolphin uh, tuna uh, labeling because mm. of another decision that's coming down from the WTO. So we're already having our laws changed. Mm. Uh, and so we're, we're, we're losing control of any minimal sovereignty we had to the corporate powers. So... I think a lot of people on the left are kind of perplexed, well, either perplexed or either this represents the, the last layer of, 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 you know, covering that he had that he was, like, in any way progressive. <laughs> but a lot of people are, are perplexed by his staunch support of the TPP. 
this treaty is so so destructive and do you think that he really thinks that this is really a good thing for well the you know, I know you're not in his mind but No I, no I'm not in his mind but I can see his history and uh, his history has been as a Wall Street Democrat Mm-hmm. Uh, throughout his career before he became president. When he was a senator, when he was a state senator, he was a Wall Street Democrat, a corporate Democrat. And his health care plan empowers the insurance industry. Isn't that a prerequisite? <laughs> <to be laughs> <not> prerequisite? <laughs> exactly. Hillary Clinton will fill those shoes well, too. Uh, Bernie Sanders, well, you have to convince the Wall Street that he won't hurt them if he wants to get elected. Uh, but, uh, yeah, no, it's definitely a prerequisite. And he is a Wall Street Democrat. So it's consistent with that. Plus, he has three Obama centers he has to fund, one in New York, one in Hawaii, one in Chicago, that's hundreds of millions of dollars that he needs to raise. And where's the money? The transnational corporate powers have the money. So I hate to put it in that kind of crass term, but I think he needs to raise a lot of money to you know, have his legacy in these Obama centers. You know, if possible, I want to be able to invite callers uh, to join each segment. We have three hours tonight, and for this first segment where we've covered, talked about Black Lives Matter and also economic violence, uh, we will invite you to uh, call in uh, 202-588-0893. And I, I do know that we are we have a caller, and I'm going to make sure I get this right. Okay, Zachary Curtis. Uh, she uh, works with Good Sense Farm and Apiary, and she's also part of the Community Farm Alliance. Community Farming Alliance. Farming Alliance. And uh, she's, uh, why don't you kind of, you can set this up for us, but she's one of the people here locally interested in the cooperative worker movement. And why don't we uh, go to her on the line now, and Jennifer, you can, you can um, handle this part of the segment. Yeah, you know, so on, on the theme of cooperative economics, I, I wanted to uh, bring someone on the special today who's been doing a lot of work in that area for some years. Um, I think a key component of cooperative economics, especially in um, in the black community, has always been agriculture. And Zachary has been really involved in pushing the urban agriculture movement in D.C. and um, is looking at how cooperative economics can factor into that. So um, I'm really glad that you were able to call in, Zachary, and I wanted to see if we can explore some of those ideas. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for having me. Great. So you have been working with Goodsense Farm and Apiary and the Community Farming Alliance um, for a little while now, and I know that you guys are doing a uh, CSA out of the Emergency Community, the Emergence Community Arts Collective in Northwest, and other great things. Can you tell us a little bit about um, what you're working on? Yeah. So um, I started Goodsense Farm in 2013. Um, it's a mushroom farm and apiary, which means we produce honey. The goal is to be in the city, but so far we've sort of gotten to the the inner outskirts, and we go to farmer's markets and do everything a regular farm does, but the only difference is that we have a goal of being cooperatively run. So, yeah, and then at the same year in 2013, I had been, at that time I'd been farming, oh, sorry, I'm outdoors. Uh, I had been farming for about five years and worked with, another farmer, Gail Taylor of Three Park Harmony Farm, and we said, we can't do this alone. And we're both, had both worked with cooperatives before through the Maryland Food Co-op and other jobs and said, let's figure out if we could start a cooperative. 
So you, you mentioned wanting to shift to cooperative ownership. Why is that something that interests you? And also, um, we've been talking about Black Lives Matter on the show. How do you think that food justice and um, the urban agricultural work that you're doing connects to Black Lives Matter? Tell me the first part of the question again. What, what interests you in, in shifting to a cooperative structure? Well, um, I personally had worked for cooperatives before, and um, there are many types of cooperatives, and the, the farm participates in cooperative structures right now. So we're, I'm a farm owner who participates in a farm cooperative, um, and but it interests me, what was what interested me in going deeper um, was last year I took a trip to Cuba, and there were um, there were farm cooperatives operated by the workers, and with different levels of experience and uh, different levels of success as well. I, I'm really just an entrepreneur interested in finding ways to value that the workers are the business, and so yeah. You know, um, you and I are both in quite, I think a few people who are involved with Cooperation DC have been to Cuba, and that was really transformative for me as well. Uh, Cuba was the first time that I've actually seen large-scale cooperative ecosystems that functioned really well with people who otherwise may have been economically marginalized. So it was really inspirational for me, and that's something that I that I hope to see, and that I think we are building here in, in DC. And so just lastly, before before we move on, if you could tell tell us how you think that food justice and the work that you're doing um, can connects or can connect to Black Lives Matter. I think this is a good question. I want to locate and reframe that uh, as soon as I was aware of, you know, the context around Cuba, it wasn't that, that long after that I started to look into what's going on in our in our ecosystem and while uh, the, the similarities are that there are two countries that are primarily that have a large black population if not in the case of Cuba have primarily a afro-descendant population and also a rich history of cooperatives so the history of cooperatives in the black south with farmers and with um, civil rights movement is that those are the institutions that underwrote a lot of the activism and organizing that um, that people were doing at the time. It's also, um, it, there are also institutions that black people formed and defended for their own well-being. And so I think that the intentionality that goes into forming and maintaining a cooperative has everything to do with an atten- intentional perspective on your community, its place in the world, and its future survival. And I think it's sort of the where the rubber hits the road as far as black folks address of capitalism, of living in a capitalist uh, economy and still having to survive and still having to sort of reconcile with history. And I think that's an excellent point. Um, actually, we're going to be exploring that idea a little bit further on January 24th at Shaw Library from 3 to 5 p.m., where we're going to be reading the book Collective Courage, which is written by Jessica Gordon Nimhart about the history of African-American cooperatives. Um, so anyone who's interested in some of the ideas that we're talking about um, around cooperative economics and how it has always been present in the black community in the United States, I encourage you.
you to come out to that wisdom circle at Shaw Library on January 24th from 3 to 5 p.m. Zachary, I'm sure a lot of people are also interested in learning more about how they can support Good Sense Farm and the Community Farming Alliance. Where can people find more information? Yes, you can find Good Sense Farm at G-O-O-D-S-E-N-S-E-F-A-R-M dot com. Good Sense Farm spelled out. Um, and we're on all the social media channels, Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and uh, Instagram as at Good Sense Farm. Um, you, the Community Farming Alliance operates through um, either my farm or Three Part Harmony Farm. We are looking for ways to make that sort of its own entity, but right now you can still go to GoodSenseFarm.com for more information on either or both. Wonderful, Zachary. Thanks so much for calling in. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you. Happy New Year. And Esther, I'm going to turn it back over to you. Thank you, Jennifer and Zachary. So I ended the last segment with asking Jennifer and Netfa about a victory that they want to cite for this year because we want to also talk about the good things and things accomplished. So Margaret and Kevin, so in terms of uh, the different actions that you've been involved in, different struggles, any victories to mention? We actually did have uh, a big victory early in 2015, in February of 2015, and that was um, defending Internet uh, neutrality. Um, that was a struggle that we got involved with um, throughout much of 2014, where the, the big giant cable companies, Comcast, AT&T, and Verizon, were really pushing for the Internet to become more like cable TV type of situation where people are only have access based on their ability to pay, instead of right now where you can, once, once you're on the internet, you basically can go wherever you want. Um, and we saw this as a huge issue for people across the board, especially if you think people of color who, who use a lot of the internet to communicate, to get information, people that need to be able to, to have access to getting jobs or information. It's just it's something that's fundamental to everyone. And we were told that uh, reclassifying the internet to protect net neutrality was not possible. It was off the table. And so I think that working with a broad coalition where we used um, direct action strategically and mass participation. Millions of people wrote in comments to the FCC. We were able together to force the FCC to put that on the agenda and then to actually pass that. So overcoming the cable giants, which are have a ton of money, um, that was pretty big for us and taught us a lot. There were too. so many lessons in that. It was great. Well, the, co- the climactic scene, of course, was when Margaret blocked the driveway of the chairman of the FCC as he was trying to go to work which was also near the end of the campaign, and uh, shortly after that, uh, Wheeler and Obama came to our side, and that was actually a turning point moment. But what was really interesting to me was the the African-American participation. The old-line civil rights groups, uh, Urban League, NAACP, actually sided with the telecoms. And thank I goodness. wonder why. Well, they've taken a lot of money from the internet. A lot you of think? money. You think? A lot of money. No, it's know. not. It's pretty well documented. But it was great was that there's a new black civil rights movement. And they organized amazingly and overcame the Jesse Jacksons, overcame the NAACP. Uh, it was really a very interesting thing to see at this moment in history. Mm-hmm. Where there's this kind of new 
black civil rights movement that's younger. developing. That's younger. And the other thing I just would point to is, you know, I came out of the drug policy movement. Back I was working on legalizing marijuana when Reagan was mm. president. So he was saying just say no. Wow. I was saying end the drug war, you know, stop the mass incarceration. This is back in the early 80s. And so I always learned to find victories and defeats uh, <laughs> because we had a lot of defeats. Uh, but uh, there was a victory and defeat on the TPP. Uh, fast track, the fight to uh, get fast track trade authority mm-hmm. was not easy for the right. Obama administration. They had to fight so hard to get it. We had an amazing grassroots struggle. And in order for them to get it, they had to change their plan and allow us to see the TPP before he signed it. Mm-hmm. That The plan was actually to keep it. Because it was t- all secret. Yeah. The, right. the idea was to keep it secret for four years after it was passed. After it was mm. signed, yeah. After it was signed, four years after they were going to keep it secret for four years after it was signed. But because he couldn't get fast track without opening up the vault and letting us see it, uh, we got to see it. And so now people from all different expertise areas, labor, food, water, uh, health care, uh, banking regulation, and, and environment, labor, are all doing analyses of the various parts and putting out reports about how terrible it is. It's yeah, and how worse, it impacts Worse than we right. expected. Exactly. Right. It's a great connecting issue, and now we have the information to fight more strongly. Plus, they're stuck in an election year, which makes it harder for them. Mm. Uh, so even though we lost the fast-track fight, we won a lot just by fighting. Well, you know, I wish I had, David, I wish I had queued up, uh, had one of those applause things that you run for Life at Five. If we, can we get one of those maybe for the next hour or so? Yay! Yay! Okay. So, all right. What we're going to do is finish up for this hour and then come back at the top of the hour and get into more about this economic issues and also uh, how we are impacting the world, how this, you know. Mm-hmm. That our empire is impacting the world and how the world is in turn impacting us. Okay, so stay with us. We'll, We'll be back at the top of the hour. You can't promote democracy in foreign countries and deny us our rights here as citizens of this nation. You understand? You can't promote democracy in Iraq and Iran where I'm a United States veteran. I serve my country and deny me my rights here. That's some stuff that my daddy went through in the 30s and the 40s. You understand? That's the new face of old Jim Crow. This ain't nothing but legalized slavery, and we, de- we, we traded the penitentiary for the plantation, cotton for cocaine, and these people in this crowd, if you're an ex-offender, you're the cash crop. You worth $40,000 a year, just like you were on the auction block down there at Lexington Market 150 years ago. We dying out here, man. We starving, and we can't be fathers to our children if we locked up. We can't have a family unit if we locked up. We can't be part of role models if we locked up. I've been out of jail since 1991, and they still trying to lock me up. We locked up minus the bars if we don't stand up and start talking about this and handling this. 